I'm Ricky. And I'm Joe. And this is Season 4, Episode 9 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast, slated to come out on uh, July 19th, 2021. I think that's the right date. Uh, anyways, uh, it'll come out somewhere around then. And uh, we are going to be drinking my Accidental Brewer Deja Brew. Um, so this is a mead that I made uh, that is a coffee mill. It is uh, 16% ABV. It uh, is an orange blossom wildflower mead mix. And um, it has coffee as a adjunct in tertiary. So I put it in there. And uh, as opposed to the other coffee mill that I made, this one, uh, while it's not, I wouldn't say it's perfect, uh, it like got the coffee flavor without some of the, um, the, the like off weird flavors that you get from putting mm -hmm. it in primary. Um, and it also didn't make it as acidic. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also probably a sweet mead is, yep. is what, what I would refer to it as. So go ahead and give me your take on it. And, and, um, don't be, don't, I, I'm going to be harsh on this one. Cause okay. it's a, I will say for me, this is actually really good. This is pretty much like if you ever had what's you know a straight mead, no real other flavors. It's just like the honey distilled down, some of it left behind. It's got all those classic mead flavors with just that little bit of coffee in it. Mm -hmm. So like it's not a super strong coffee flavor. It's not the same as like when you get like a coffee stout or something like that. But I kind of like that because you know. I do drink my coffee black most of the time, but like that coffee is not my favorite flavor. Like if the primary flavor to this was coffee, not honey, I'm not sure I'd like it as much, you know. But in all honesty, like where it sits now, like I finished mine really quick. Yeah, I I drink a bottle of that. You it's could got just that like little bit, you know, extra. Like I, we're gonna like play some D and D after this. I'm probably gonna have some at D and D. That sounds know? like a fantastic idea. As a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, so. I drank a bottle of this mm -hmm. um, a, a while back, like a couple of weeks ago, um, and the it, it it is a lot of caffeine. Just to let you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So so drink it during the day. Don't mm -hmm. drink it closer to night. Uh, but the so the the mead itself, the base mead, is really good. Yeah. Like, I wasn't expecting for it to be as good. And it's it's um, a base mead that I made off of an experiment, which is yeast starter versus yeast sprinkle. Um, and that's, you know, on that Accidental Brewer channel that I have uh, on YouTube. So it's it really ended up being uh, a really interesting, um, you know, kind of outcome. I'm not going to say exactly how that turned out because I don't think I published the videos on it for the final part of it but um it's an interesting outcome all of the meads out of it turned out really good none of them turned out bad mm -hmm. is, a, is what i will say just as a as a uh, kind of prologue to it but i didn't like this this thing went like way higher than i thought it would um you know to, to 16 i'm not mm -hmm. even sure that so so my wife helps me write these labels I might have told her the wrong thing because I thought it was only 13%, but mm -hmm. it might be 16%. Who knows? I mean, that 3% ABV is not a huge amount. It doesn't change the flavor, and that's all that matters. I don't yeah. care if it's 
10 or 16 percent it's, it's all about the flavor but the it the the wine itself is really delicious it's very sweet mm. i back sweetened it to a certain point after i stabilized it and it's, it's like um it's a very very sweet wine and at first when i put this in it was terrible like the coffee mm. flavor was so overpowering um, but now there's like these buttery notes that you kind of get afterwards. Um, you get all the nuttiness and the roastiness of the coffee mm-hmm. without any of that like kind of like weird acidic flavor like it. But I treated it like cold brew is, yeah. is the whole thing like a, at the end. And that is how I'm going to make my coffee melts from now on. I don't know that I'm going to put it in orange blossom honey, though, um, because I I thought it would kind of be like orange juice and. Uh, coffee, like you know, when, mm-hmm. when you have them in the morning, like for breakfast, and I kind of enjoy that. But um, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think that that's really the flavor profile I should be going for. Yeah, with this. I can see what you're what you're saying with that. There's certainly a, a citrusy flavor that comes with that. I also find, even though like in terms of gravity and bricks, I don't believe orange blossom honey is any sweeter than like wildflower honey. But because it's got those like citrusy notes, it tastes sweeter. Yeah. So um, I can see that shift. But in all honesty, man, I gotta say, uh, I've not really had a coffee melt I liked um, because most places trying really put that coffee front, and it's like you're drinking coffee with some mead sweetness. I like this kind of setup better, where you've just got a, a nice, plain, well-made mead. That instead of where people would normally put like some spices or herbs or some fruit to give it some extra flavor, it's just got that little coffee flavor in it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I was pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. uh, as to how this turned out when I broke out a bottle. Just cause I was just like curious what it was like after I think it's been like three, four months since I since I put it together, and it's it's mellowed nicely. It's, yeah. It's very good. Um, the recipe for that's on the on the other channel, but basically, you just make a um, a high like sack mead style. Um, you know, you step feed a, a mead to get up to a certain point. You have to mm-hmm. do all the like um, the additions to make sure that it's uh, got the right nutrients and stuff. Yeah. And then and then once you do that, um, you set up the uh, the cold brew, and I think I did. Um, in one gallon, I did 75 grams of Pike's Peak Roast Starbucks coffee that okay. I ground that I, that I ground myself. Okay. Um, yeah, and th- and that ended up being really good. I'm I'm very happy with it. Mm-hmm. So. Well, uh, let's talk about pressure fermentation with spunding valves. Have you done any research on this? Oh yeah. In fact, I knew about it before I saw it on there. Yeah. Um. I want to say like it's a hot topic. It used to be, like, a little controversial, but that's kind of all gone away. Like, when I first started making mead in, like, 2013, I knew about it, and some people were for it or against it. But it kind of seems like most people have come to the conclusion now it's a pretty dang good way to do things, as long as you, like, take the right steps. Right. So you can't just put a spunding valve on. Well, so for the people that don't know what a spunding valve is, it's a valve that will release CO2 or any other gas when it reaches a certain pressure within a fermentation vessel so for instance if we're talking about like a um, um, a fermentation vessel like a, um, a firm firmzilla or something like that it has to have a little bit of head to be able to have that gas mm-hmm. area on it 
Uh, and it's a great way to carbonate while fermenting and ferment like lagers or, or mm-hmm. colder temperature things at a higher um, uh, uh, temperature because you don't get those weird flavors that you would get if you fermented at a higher temperature naturally, yeah. like normally. Well, it's normally not naturally with just, uh, you know, airlocks and stuff like that. So um, I've been thinking about getting one. They're not very expensive. They're like, you know, 30 mm-hmm. to $50. Uh, and just throwing them on one of my gallon fermentations for beer and see how that turns out. And um, most people like Kavike yeast for this. Mm-hmm. But I thought, like, what if I did that with a mead? Yeah. Like, I mean, as long as you're putting it in, mead. like, a keg or something, it doesn't really matter. Well, yeah. you can – you so, I mean, as long as it's a pressure a vessel that can handle pressure, you can do it. So you could – I could get, like, a small fernzilla or something like that. Yeah, you just – you'd want it to be something that has emergency relief. That's the only thing about a pressurized well, that's, system. That's what the spunding valve does. No, it's not. Uh, that spunding valve will, if working, when it hits a particular PSI, release pressure. But those systems can fail. So what you're like, just from a mechanical system standpoint, um, when you're doing something with a spunding valve, even if it's just like a little one-gallon keg or just anything that has one of those emergency, if a pressure hits a certain thing, there's no gauge. It's just like a mechanical lever that flips and the gas shoots out. Yeah, I'm, I'm Otherwise, not sure. you might pressurize something. I'm not sure that that's the way that, that it's suggested that you set these things up. So maybe maybe I need to do, do, to do some more research. Because you are right. You, you want to mm-hmm. have some sort of fail-safe on it. But it, from what I understand, the spunding valves that you would buy now have that built into them. Maybe. But when I, I looked to see how expensive they were because I wanted to know like that price point. Mm-hmm. And the two I looked at both had very large warnings at the beginning. When you put this on something, it needs to have pressure relief. Like it needs to have an emergency relief system. Mm. Okay. Because the, it's the same sort of thing with um, any carbonation. Like you don't – you wouldn't normally carbonate at a, a level that can get high in like a glass system. So like you can bottle carb something and you know, oh, hey, that might make like – Oh, actually, you know, that's actually a really good way to think about it. You think of, like, a glass bottle that you put a cap on. That cap is only supposed to go to a certain PSI or it flies off. But we all know that doesn't always happen. Sometimes they're clamped too tight. Sometimes there's some other failure. And now you've got a bottle bomb. And eventually your bottle just explodes. You know, those sort of relief systems need to always, like, have a backup just for safety, especially if you're going to do something large. Like a one gallon probably wouldn't get that high, but that's probably still glass failure if you're keeping it on the whole time. The two ways that I know people really use these things is they'll either turn it on really soon. So like they'll set it at like a ridiculously low PSI, like one PSI from the very beginning. Let that leak out a little bit because you want to push that oxygen that's in the, uh, the container out. And then they turn it up to their desired PSI. Or from the, they let it like ferment normally, which is like a regular airlock for a couple days. And when it's getting close to the end, that's when they go in and like put it on with the, the regular PSI thing. So, you know, if you're doing that second one and you're only putting it on for like the last two or three days to carb it a little bit before you like move it over to another carbing system, yeah, I could see it maybe isn't as necessary. But if you want it on from the get go, I'd be a little worried about like pressure buildup. So the the way that I've seen people do it <clears throat> is they have things like firmzillas, and I don't know everything about a firmzilla, but mm. a firmzilla is basically a conical fermentation vessel that has a seal on the top of it, and you either do a transfer system, 
mm. um, with carbonate, and you carbonate another thing, uh, carbonate another vessel, and then that's your vessel that you're going to transfer into, and that's how you get your carbonation. Mm-hmm. So you get natural carbonation, or you have a um, a, a spunding valve on it, and then you go ahead and and like. Uh, set your PSI at a certain level. Yeah, yeah. And and you add a, a device to it. Now I don't know if the cap on the Firmzilla or some of these other like mm-hmm. you know pressure vessels ha- have like a release thing. I know that my like my fermentation cap on my or my um, my uh, CO two cap on my uh, little gallon kegs mm-hmm. they they have like a, a special pressure release valve that will pop yeah, if yeah. it gets over a certain amount. So I don't even know if I could do it with a spunding valve. I think that they'll hold more than I think it's like twenty or thirty psi before that thing will pop. Um, gotcha. So, so it may be that they that all those things have that built into them. I just don't know. But you it don't you're be, not yeah. adding a separate piece of equipment to it. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. The spunding valves you just kind of attach to right. it. And there's a whole bunch of different connectors for them. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I mean, the the ball lock connector is the most common one yeah. that people use, and it's it it looks like an amazing way to do beer and it may be the way that I do beer if I I'm, I'm probably going to buy one like in a month mm-hmm. or so I've got two beers I want to make of course they're stouts cuz that's the way I always like to make mm-hmm. my beers right and I'm you know going to put that on yep, there yep. And, and go with it so yeah uh, I'll let you know how that ends up I'm hoping it'll end up amazingly yeah um, but so here's the real question cuz this is what some people debate about is are you going to serve it like if it's already carved like you're done now if fermentation's over, it's at the PSI you want. Are you going to filter it, or are you going to just leave it where it is? So I'm probably going to – I would probably do a pressure transfer mm-hmm. to my – I've got two of those kegs. I'd probably pressure transfer to the other one and use a floating dip tube to be able to keep the um, – Yep, I can see that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and and that would be – that would end up being my – Yeah. You know. I think that's the better way to do it. Because I worry about as soon as you start seriously relieving that pressure when you're serving it, that that yeast is just going to, unless it's a super tight pack. You know, again, some yeasts are designed to do that. But just like a standard ale yeast, not so much. They've got a little bit of, of that sediment at the bottom that's not like almost painted on. Um, I just worry that's going to get thrown back up in suspension if you don't do like something like that. So yeah. you're, you're transferring it to another vessel. But some people say they don't care about that. There's a lot of people that are like, look, this is perfect. Because when it's done, I put a little spigot on it, and boom. Yeah, so some people like that do hazy IPAs that don't move things around. And that, mm. that's generally the consensus with those people, because you, you want the yeast in the hazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, the, the ones that I've seen, they use like a floating dip tube, mm-hmm. and so that keeps it up on the top. It doesn't disturb the lease on the bottom, and it has a, uh, a lease trap. And so you put this container on the bottom, you turn it on, you oh, yep, yep. flip it, it drops the lease down into it, yeah, flip it. Yeah, those things are great. Yeah, and so yeah. that's kind of like, it's probably the direction I'm going in. I'm going to ferment from that, and then I'll do a, a closed release uh, or a closed pressure Oh, yeah, move. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I've been meaning, that's on my bucket list. And maybe uh, the system you're talking about, I'm not super familiar with it. Uh, maybe that's just like built-in standard. But I love those little like yeast traps at the bottom. Just yeah. boop, cut it off. Good to go. Done. Well, that, uh, there's also a way to dry hop your stuff, too, if you wanted to. So you mm-hmm. can drop your hops down there, purge out the air with some CO2, put it up in the bottom, and turn, and th- then your your brew never hits air. And I'm I'm thinking about doing that with not hops, but with wood, by okay. oaking and stuff yeah. like that. So I've got some um, I've got some thoughts 
around around how to make that work. But I'm hoping that uh, I'll be able to to do something like that within the next year, you know, or so, depending mm-hmm. on how things go. I do think that that's kind of the end of our episode, though. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So um, probably probably move some of the the topics that we had about uh, ubiquity and cleaning bottles to like maybe the next uh, next episode or something, depending on how much time we have. Um, but thanks so much for listening. Um, we appreciate you listening. We do have a Patreon and a Twitter and other ways of socially engaging with us that we'd love for you guys to, to be part of. Um, otherwise, this has been Season 4, Episode 9 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast, and we'll catch you next time.